Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. The Res Talk podcast has a goal of reaching out and communicating late-breaking news and thoughtful insights into the broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to the broad array of stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. I'm your host, Bill Spohn, and I've worked in the HVACR and building performance markets for about 30 years. I've been interfacing and working with the team at ResNet for nearly that whole time. Efficiency. It's invisible, yet Energy efficiency represents the largest, cheapest, and healthiest means of reducing the global temperature increase. Achieving good energy efficiency also means and results in better occupant comfort, health, productivity, and as well as creating jobs and equity. David will also discuss the need to take the whole building approach to retrofits rather than the more common approaches, which are often emphasized specific widgets or systems. I'll be talking about New methods for approaching building valuation since energy cost savings alone often won't cover the whole cost of renovations. Now, the scale of this endeavor is roughly three to four trillion dollars, but we'll hear about a set of paths that, if rapidly implemented, could set us on a practical rather than a political approach to meeting the Paris Accord. So, listen in as we have this chat with David Goldstein from the NRDC. Welcome today, David. Uh, It's good to talk to you, Bill. Same here. So we'll be talking today about the National Retrofit Challenge and how that interleaves, in your eyes, help would help to meet the Paris goal of 1.5 degrees. So I want to sort of break that down into, let's talk about what the Paris goal is, where that comes from, and then how the National Retrofit Challenge fits into that. Sure. Well, Bill, most of the analysis about how to meet the commitments of the Paris Agreement focus on the two-degree goal and actually misfocus because the goal, if you go to the original document, does not say limit climate change to two degrees. It says limit climate change to well under two degrees. So 1.95 degrees, for example, would not, I don't think anyone would say, be well under two. So that's the kind of mandatory goal. And the stretch goal is to pursue efforts to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees. That's really important because the new IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN body that looks at the science of climate change, found some very distressing impacts at 1.5 degrees that would get a lot worse if we got anywhere near two, much less worrying about what happens beyond that. So the talk here is really about Now that we've increased the ambition of the goal, and I can describe how much of an increase that is, how can we meet it? And home retrofits in the United States become a a very critical element of answering that question. And you've spoken about this topic in front of many audiences, I'd imagine, and done an awful lot of research. So let me talk about your role at the NRDC. Sure. I'm the energy director of the Climate and Clean Energy Program at NRDC. And my portfolio is really very broad. I look at more or less everything energy efficiency. I'll joke that I look at energy efficiency globally in both senses of the word. So it covers buildings, it covers industry, it covers supply chains of industry, it covers transportation, both cities and motor vehicles. And I've also done work in India, 
China, Russia, other countries, and for global institutions like the International Organization for Standardization. The reason for focusing on energy efficiency is it's the largest, cheapest, greenest, and healthiest resource that's available and also the fastest to acquire. ResNet and the whole home rating industry has a central role to play, I think, in making efficiency live up to its full potential. But why do you think people get stuck or fixated on widgets and and other topics if it does have all these attributes of being the largest, cheapest, and healthiest? Well, first of all, you can't get rich quick on energy efficiency, or at least if you can, I haven't seen anyone who exemplifies it. I'm sure most raters will agree that they're doing this because they think it's the right thing to do and maybe you can make a living at it, but you're not going to get rich quick. Whereas if you're developing energy resources for sale, you can do that. Second thing is that efficiency is invisible. You try to think of an iconic image to use in a PowerPoint presentation of energy efficiency, and you always come up empty. The whole point of efficiency is you can't see it. It feels the same or maybe a little better. It looks the same, maybe a little better, but it doesn't look different enough that you can say, yeah, that's the thing I want. That seems to be a a large challenge to sway public attitudes and motivation and, I guess, political ones too, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, because if I challenge you to do something and you know it's impossible, you're just going to say, well, yeah, that's nice, but let's go on to something else. As, as Tom Friedman used to say, you're on the Titanic and you're in the ballroom and you're having a good time and the captain announces, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to hit an iceberg. What do you do? Party on. On the other hand, if the captain said, we're worried that we're going to hit an iceberg and sink, but if everyone runs and leans over the starboard rail, I think we can miss it. Then people are going to be motivated. And my role in climate change is to point out that, yes, we can solve this problem, and it's not going to take a lot of sacrifice, but it is going to take some serious, politically difficult decision-making. On the other hand, we know what those decisions are. We know how to do it. And that comes to the whole building approach. And how would you wrap that up, the statement of whole building approach, in your words? There are far more opportunities to look at systems as a whole than there are at individual components because of the synergies involved. So, for example, if you're trying to construct a scenario of low climate impact for homes, you would want to switch from gas to heat pumps because heat pumps have a higher efficiency all the way from the fuel burned at the power plant all the way to the hot water or the space heat. And secondly, because they interact very beneficially with renewable energy. So having more efficiency in the building helps you integrate more renewables into the system. The issue is heat pumps are expensive and they're priced by the ton. So if you just say, I'm going to replace my gas furnace or oil furnace with a heat pump, it's going to look really expensive. On the other hand, if you first fix the leaks in the envelope and the leaks in the duct, or maybe even go to a ductless heat pump system, and you insulate and you put in better windows and you do all the things that raters know how to advise their contractors how to do them, then the size of the heat pump gets smaller and the profile of the loads from the building gets much more manageable in terms of integrating renewables 
into the system. And that's whether the renewables are on your roof or somewhere else on the grid. So the combination is more cost-effective and more comfortable than any of the parts would be if you took them individually. In addition, often if you have one general contractor in charge of a whole project, you're going to get more cost-effective results than if you have to do five things in five separate contracts. In a sense, I think we're talking to the ResNet community here through ResTalk Podcast. You're preaching to the choir. How do we collectively get the word out? And what ways, any techniques you can think of? The biggest thing is projecting hope. I've done a couple of blogs that will invoke Roger Bannister or Winston Churchill in trying to say, if you set an ambitious target and you're serious about it and you say, ladies and gentlemen, we can solve this problem. It's really difficult of a problem, but we know what to do. That is the first important step. And I think ResNet people can project that kind of rational optimism, radical optimism, I would say, because you don't hear it very often. The basic point here is if you want to do something ambitious, you have to try. And I think retrofits are something that people have not thought of, either in the sense of this is a major piece of getting to a climate goal, or in the sense of this could cost us a lot of money, but it pays for itself. And besides which, most of the investment in money you could justify on having a more comfortable, quieter, safer, healthier home, forgetting even the savings in utility bills. That must be part of the concept here for the the National Retrofit Challenge. Can you tell us about how that plays out in your mind? Well, it's a, a really, it's an area for public-private partnering, whether it's formal partnerships or just having different institutions working together. If you look at the physics of climate change and how we would do something about it, climate change pollutants are cumulative. The more you pollute at the same level, the deeper trouble we get into. So it's not just a question of how far can we cut emissions, but how fast. Now, retrofits are one of the fastest programs you can imagine. NRDC worked with two utilities on two different occasions to try to see if you could do deep retrofits for every home in an entire town. And in both cases, we were able to retrofit 85% plus of the homes. And I don't mean 85% of the homes that had technical potential or where the owner agreed. I mean 85% of the homes sticking out of the ground in a four-year program. So the issue is how can you design a set of incentives, public relations, institutional reforms, like making capital available to homeowners who want to do this so that you can encourage this to happen at a fast rate? These programs I mentioned, one was in Oregon, the other was in California, were deep retrofits. They were saving 40% or more of heating and water heating energy, despite not even having discovered the blower door yet and not recognizing that duct leakage was a major source of problems on efficiency. In fact, the second one was really the most cogent demonstration of the fact that, hey, duct leakage really is a problem. And if we did something about it as part of this retrofit program, we'd provide much better comfort and consumer satisfaction. And then we'd be saving power for the utility at its peak, as well as saving energy for everyone. That's, again, the multifaceted benefits that you spoke of earlier. Absolutely. So 
the programs in Oregon and California, are there other uh, efforts underway, existing underway right now, and perhaps a way for people that listen to this podcast to get involved, to support them, or at least be aware of them? I think we're a little short of that place. I wish we were there, but we're not quite. There are a number of programs throughout the country, but most of them that I know of anyway have not recognized the urgency of getting retrofits done. If you look at a graph that I presented at the ResNet conference, which is available if you just Google my name and retrofits, you'll see that we have to get moving really quickly at a scale far larger than has ever been attempted, as far as we're able to tell, outside of a few pilot scale tests. So I think this opens the door for individual communities to say, well, we're going to do it. If Hood River, Oregon can do this in four years, we're going to do this in four years as well, only with more advanced techniques. And with the goal in mind that we're establishing markets in retrofits, competitive markets, and therefore we need ResNet ratings at the end of the pipeline to show, okay, this is what I've got. This is what it's worth. Here's what my energy bills were before what they are now. Because if you just have a pure government program, someone walks in, does all the work, and then goes away, you're not going to unleash competitive forces. And the homeowner is going to say, all right, I got my home retrofit, but is it worth any more on resale? How's anyone even going to know? Exactly. So you, it does have to have that sort of commercial aspect to it versus just purely a governmental program. Makes total sense. What are some of the things that are being done elsewhere in the world? You mentioned work you've done in India and China and Russia. Are there any insights you can bring to the U.S. from things you've seen happening elsewhere in the world? Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from other countries. I worked on a project on building codes with Dr. Yuri Matrosov of the Russian, actually the Soviet originally, Ministry of Construction, Department of Building Physics. And he had invented a concept that was very much like a ResNet rating, but this was back in the 1980s, where it became part of their building code, just as ERI has become part of the model code in North America. He had the code require that all homes needed to have a posted energy rating similar to a ResNet rating, an asset rating, and in addition, they should look at the metered results and compare the operational rating to the asset rating over time and have both of them available to potential buyers. This practice started catching on. So you had the European Performance in Buildings Directive that came out in the early part of this millennium that required all member states to have either asset or operational ratings for all buildings over a certain threshold size, which I think was about 5,000 square meters. If you look at an apartment building in a real estate shop front in Paris, you're going to see for every apartment that's for rent, there's going to be, as long as it's in a large building, which they all are, you're going to see a rating for the energy use graded on an A through F scale and the projected energy use. And in most cases, I think half of the member states in Europe also require an operational rating. So these processes are beginning in other countries. They're really farther along. I mean, imagine if this country required that you couldn't sell or lease a building if it didn't have a ResNet rating. 
And that's where Europe is right now. Well, and that's that performance and buildings directive statute that's in place. That's right. That was adopted at the EU level and then followed up in slightly different ways, but fairly consistently for each of the member states. And there's over 20 of them. So something that's sort of near and dear to my heart is modular homes, factory-built homes, and industrialization of this concept. Is that something that you can speak towards? Yeah. The problem that we have with retrofits is that today, a typical deep retrofit, well, first of all, they're so uncommon, we don't even have reliable numbers. But people who are expert in this area, people who've worked for utilities and have tried to encourage them, are telling us that $20,000 is a reasonable estimate, and to the extent it's off, it's probably too low. So this is really a lot of money. And one of the reasons it's a lot of money, and I know this personally because I went through a retrofit of my nine-unit building about 30 years ago when I was on the board, there's a lot of stuff that's done as a one-off, and you're paying the value of people's time for doing something that they could replicate if they did it again, but they're never going to have a chance to. So I think a lot of the costs that are involved in retrofit initially are going to be able to go down over time. One of my colleagues on the paper for deep retrofits, um, Peter Turnbull at PG&E, has pointed out the Dutch program for industrializing retrofits, Energy Sprung, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, which is a uh, whole building program that reclads the building on top of the existing shell and puts in new HVAC systems integrated into the new envelope structures that they're putting in. Now, this is easier in the Netherlands than here because you have more multifamily buildings that each unit kind of looks alike. On the other hand, we have plenty of subdivisions here where all the homes pretty much look alike. And it shouldn't be very difficult if you were having a market-based competitive system for encouraging retrofits to do some experimentation with someone who says, all right, we're going to do this whole subdivision and we're going to design a system that's built in a factory and then just truck the components to the site. The advantage of this, not only is it less expensive And the fact that you have the ability to do uh, air leak sealing at a much higher level of tightness than you might otherwise do. But this can also go faster because if you're looking at a modular system, you can truck something to the house. You can do it in a day or at most two. People don't have to move out for a week. It's going to be a lot less disruptive to the renter or the homeowner. Makes total sense there. You mentioned a little bit earlier the uh, activity in Russia and actually looking at the rating and then the, you said the metered results. Was there actually, are there studies that have compared actual savings versus projected that you're aware of? There have been a few in this country. The good news is that to the extent that we have seen them, they validate that the ResNet rating very accurately predicts the energy bills on average. An asset rating by its nature, is a measure of efficiency. So it is trying to normalize out variations in behavior and variations in weather. So you wouldn't expect that for any year, the ResNet rating is going to be spot on in predicting Mr. and Mrs. Jones's energy bill. But you can hope that for a sample of 100 or 500 homes, 
you're going to get it on average, and the variation will be kind of symmetric on both sides of the average and within reasonable bounds. And all the studies that we have, as I said, the good news is all the studies we have say that the predicted energy bill is within 2 or 3% of the metered bill. And if the prediction is 100, the range of variation is more or less from 70 to 145. So it's significant, but it's not from 10 to 500. That's a very good thing. The bad news is there haven't been a lot of these studies, and they haven't been conducted at a level of care that allows for them to be peer-reviewed. So they're less convincing in the scientific community than they could be. I think what we need is for someone to step forward, perhaps a utility that's using HERS ratings or ERI ratings as a basis of a program, and do a more careful evaluation of what's the relationship between HERS ratings and metered results. And what that would do is it would provide a feedback loop to tell us if there are any changes we may need to make in ResNet Standard 301 to bring it closer into alignment with what the measured results are. Yes, it's a a spectrum of results, but of course, the idea is to move in the correct direction towards savings. Now, you'd mentioned also before about side benefits of high performance, high energy performance, comfort, health, productivity, other factors like that. Is that a platform upon which we can sort of wedge into the consciousness of consumers? I think it really is for a number of reasons. Let's look at health first. There's a pretty strong correlation between poor air quality and poor health, particularly asthma. And to the extent that we have really tightly sealed homes with reliable mechanical ventilation, raters know that when you're looking for air leaks, some of them that you're going to find in some cases are leaks from a garage where they may be storing gasoline or toxic chemicals into the living spaces. So if you can fix that, you're obviously doing a lot for health. Several people have suggested that the health benefits are so large that it would be reasonable to ask the health insurance companies to underwrite some of the cost of retrofits and demonstrate that they're saving money by doing that because it's cheaper to keep someone from getting asthma in the first place than to treat it for a lifetime. Then there's the comfort benefits. If you look at consumers who have decided to retrofit their homes, and there aren't very many of them, because it's not marketed this way. But if you look at why people did it, if you listen to the ads for the window companies or the insulation contractors, they're saying, make your home more comfortable, make it quieter, less dust. Oh yeah, and you're gonna save energy on your utility bill as well. So the marketing that we're seeing today is focusing on the comfort and health and convenience aspects of the if energy efficient home and really not putting forth this is a good investment strategy to help make you money, even though it is. On a personal basis, I live near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The county health department actually ran a program where they did retrofits, and they tied in the medical or the health benefits and sent someone over to do a pre- and post-survey, a medical student actually, to do a pre- and post-survey on the work that they did when we took part in the program. So it's happening out there, but not in a lot of places. And I think we need to share the information about that. I wasn't aware of that, and I think most of the listeners may not be either. And just knowing that there's serious study that says, yeah, retrofits do help with your health. 
is going to make a big difference. I mean, we need to leverage all these values because the cost of deep retrofitting all the buildings in the country, and basically almost every building, unless it's been built in the last two years, needs a retrofit. The cost is something like two and a half, three trillion dollars. And if you throw in commercial buildings that need retrofitting, you're talking about four trillion or more. That is quite a lot of money. And if we don't quantify and take advantage and tell people about all the benefits, the response is going to be, oh my God, we can't afford it. Rather than the correct response is, how have we been affording to not have done it all these years? Yeah, where else are we spending the money, basically, on discomfort or ill health, that kind of thing? Yeah, and simply on climate change. I mean, I'll look at this personally. One of the consequences of climate change is wildfires. I live in an urban situation. I'm far from areas that could burn down, or so it would seem. But two years ago, a forest fire started upwind of me about 70 miles. And by the next day, I was breathing particulate matter that put the reading well into the unsafe for anyone category. And a few weeks later, I had pneumonia. So what is the value to health of preventing or reducing that kind of thing? You don't realize just how risky the situation is until you get into an unfortunate situation where you find out firsthand and it's really ugly. I want to make sure the listeners understand who you are, a little bit more about who you are, because you've been passionate and working in this area and speaking on these topics. I'm looking at the ResNet lineup. I think you did five presentations at the last ResNet conference or took part in five. Yeah, I like speaking. Hopefully that <laughs> comes across to the listener right now. Your scientific background, correct? Yes, I have a PhD in physics from Berkeley. Have you authored books or is it mainly papers? Anything that reaches more the consumer level? Yeah, there's two books that I've written. The first is called Saving Energy, Growing Jobs. And the point of this book is to contradict the argument that we've been hearing for a number of years that regulation is the opposite of competitive markets. And that to paraphrase what others would say, that regulations on energy efficiency are kind of socialist. And what this book shows is that regulations, rather than being the opposite of market forces, are in fact a precondition for making markets work at all. And the reason for that is markets work best when there is perfect competition for a known good. What's a known good? In the case of a house, what's a known good? It's a house in a given neighborhood with a given number of square feet, and you can look in it and see what it looks like. But if you don't know whether the energy bills are $500 a year or $5,000 a year, then maybe it isn't so known of a good. Now, in many parts of the country, you'll see the value of uh, utility bill payments over the course of a 30-year mortgage is higher than the cost of the home itself. Typically, it's about a third, which is still not to sneeze at. So if you don't know what this known good of a house is, the market for resale homes isn't going to function. And this is pretty much true for everything. So the purpose of that book is to describe how environmental attributes need to be protected through regulations and through other kinds of market forces. Notice I'm referring to regulations as a form of market force and how that produces public benefit. 
My second book is called Invisible Energy. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that it's really difficult to come up with an iconic image for energy efficiency. And since I'm a serious amateur photographer, I tried real hard to do that and gave up after about six months of trying. At least I got a title for the book out of the attempt, though. (laughs) There you go. So the point here is that energy is invisible to policymakers as much as it is to ordinary consumers or people who are in the efficiency business. And trying to do something about that, trying to show why efficiency needs to come first in looking at environmental policy, particularly on climate change or air quality. And we hope things like this podcast and other efforts that we all take part in help to communicate that, like you talked about leveraging all the information, the beliefs, and the passions that we have. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of grassroots kind of organizing that we need to do on the retrofits issue, because frankly, it was kind of a surprise to me when I first did the math to show how important retrofits were, because the conventional wisdom had always been, well, focus on new homes, because if you don't retrofit a home this year, guess what? It's still around for you to retrofit next year, so who cares? The new answer is you care when climate pollution is cumulative, because if you don't retrofit your home this year, you've got a year of emissions that you were going to get rid of, but now it's up in the atmosphere for the rest of your life and your children's and your grandchildren's. So do it now. Right. Very powerful image. You need to take a picture of that. (laughs) If only you could. I think we did justice to the topic that we were going to talk about, speak about today. Do you have any other uh, closing thoughts, perhaps? Well, again, I think the important thing for raiders and for the whole industry is to project a can-do attitude. Yes, we want to be honest about the difficulties and the expenses, but if people feel like it's hopeless, they're not even going to try. I mean, I'll give a personal example. Question, could David run a marathon this fall? Background information, the farthest David ever ran in his lifetime was almost three miles, and that was 30 years ago. So it doesn't look very encouraging. And my trainer suggested that I start working out on a treadmill, and I've done that a little bit, so I can get up to maybe a mile and a quarter continuously on the treadmill. So all the data would say, impossible, no way I can do it. But in fact, I feel like if there was a reason, if I was motivated to do it, if someone said, we'll give you $10 million for running a marathon, and don't worry about your time on the clock, you just have to run, I'm sure I could do it. And more importantly, my personal trainer thinks I could too. So that's really the missing piece is the motivation. If people, one, think it's important to do, and two, think they can do it, then they will. We will not start a GoFundMe for you, David, but (laughs) 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 to make that kitty up for your accomplishment. Well, that's the relief. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. That puts the pressure on, huh? Yeah. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. A very uh, thoughtful perspective that you provided and you've been providing for years, and it's good to get your voice out to more people. Where else will people find you? Where else will they see you? What other events do you attend? Where do you travel? I guess the most frequent speaking events are the ACEEE conferences on energy and buildings, which is every other year, and on industry, energy efficiency and industry, which is on the alternate years. And then I will always turn out at the ResNet conference and at ResNet board meetings. 
Also, I will be present at Consortium for Energy Efficiency meetings, which are open to members of CEE, which includes most of the major utilities in the United States and Canada. Very good. Well, it was a pleasure today speaking with you, David. And as always, keep on keeping on, and we'll try to embrace that spirit of not losing hope, keeping the faith, and believing what is possible. Well, thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you for listening today, and we hope you heard some interesting things from David at the NRDC. If you're pro in the building market, you should surf on over to resnet.us slash professional to learn more or to join the email list. You can also find ResNet on Facebook or Twitter, Twitter handle at ResNet, R-E-S-N-E-T-U-S. A quote for the day. Vision. It's the art of seeing what is invisible to others. That's attributed to Jonathan Swift. So we're talking about this invisible thing called efficiency, energy efficiency. And let's try to get our minds wrapped around that. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet what you heard here today or would like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please email info at resnet.us. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so. As always, thank you for listening to ResTalk. Thanks for listening to the ResTalk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn, produced by Brian Orr, and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk. Talk.